The scripture reading from this morning will be found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. A lament over the king of Tyre. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointment. I'm sorry, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. Uh, You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings uh, to feast their eyes on you by the multitude of your iniquities. In the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no, no more forever. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We appreciate you joining us for worship of our great God today. Some of the most frequent questions that I receive when we offer a chance to ask questions, whether that's in a Bible class setting, whether it's in private, whether it's in questions that are submitted in that box back there that we've been doing some on Sunday nights, a lot of them have to do with this figure in the Bible that we call Satan. Where did he come from? What was his original purpose? And how did he become what we see him being, at least in the time of Jesus and of the rest of the New Testament, this figure who plays a major role in the unfolding of the New Testament story, so much so that he's a central character, not only in the Gospels, but in the epistles, even in the book of Revelation also called the devil. The word Satan is a Hebrew word. Satan, as we would say that in Hebrew, simply meaning an accuser or an adversary, someone who stands in the way. It's why Jesus even called Peter one time. I get thee behind me, Satan. Not that he is calling him the Satan. He is saying, you are being an adversary to me. Someone who stands in the way, someone who accuses 
And that's the idea even in the New Testament, even though it's not written in Hebrew, it picks up on that Hebrew idea. It just uses that same word. It's actually going to be used a lot more frequently in our New Testament about this one figure that we call the devil. So where did he come from? What's the meaning of all of this? I am not someone today, I'm just going to be real with y'all, I'm not someone who's going to claim to have all the answers to this question. But this is also a topic that I don't think we can avoid if we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Because not only do we see this term Satan that is used, we have this figure that we're going to meet very early on in the Bible in the Garden of Eden who is going to be known as the serpent. And we've got to ask ourselves questions related to the connection between these two figures. Do we have enough to connect these two figures? What do we know about them? And why is all of this related to the unfolding of the spiritual warfare that we're talking about? If you haven't been with us, we've started a series. This is a little bit meatier series, I will admit that, where we're getting into some of these topics related to angelic beings and their interactions with, with humans, and both for good and for evil. And we cannot avoid talking about this a little bit, but I will say up front that there is some disagreement about this. There are a lot of assumptions that we have made, some which may end up being true, some which may not be, some which we need to at least throw out some of the possibilities and decide what's going to be most plausible. So today, I'm going to be doing a lot of thinking out loud. I'm just going to ask you all to think along with me with an open mind about some possibilities here as we consider this and as we ultimately are letting the Bible unfold this story that is ultimately going to reach its climax in the ministry of Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection and the aftermath of that for all of us as we are involved with it. But we're putting together some building blocks for us to get there for us to understand what's at stake when we talk about spiritual warfare. And so we begin with this figure that we meet in the Garden of Eden who's called the serpent. Consider this passage, a familiar one to you, where we know the first sin is about to happen. Everything is good in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And then we have evil that is going to become a reality for human beings for the first time in Genesis chapter 3. Now, they are responsible for their choices here, both Eve and Adam. She does take the fruit, but she also gives her her husband, and he takes it and eats it. The New Testament is going to put blame on both of these people for their decision. But the text does give us some of the things that led up to them making this decision. God had given them this, plenty of trees to eat from. He had said, there is this one tree that you are not to eat from. They call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some debate about what that expression means. I think probably the easiest way to understand that is a relationship with both good and evil. You will have evil introduced into your life along with good. I think we can determine that based on some of the effects that happen after they do take the fruit. They realize some things. They have shame about some things that they did not have before because now they have a relationship with both good and evil. But notice this serpent figure who just seems to come up out of nowhere here. It says here in Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you know, we're going down a little bit here in the text, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. I put the Hebrew word in there, Elohim, because as we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, that's a word that is often used of the one true God, as we would say in our language, but it is also used of other spiritual beings that have been created by God, of which the serpent seems to be one of them. He could be saying not so much that you will be like God Most High, but you will be like one of us, one of us spiritual creatures. You will have a higher knowledge. You will have more power if you take of this fruit. That's what it means to know good and evil. He's twisting something already here in the garden. Now, do we have any connection between this serpent and between the devil or Satan as he is known later on in the Bible? Let's talk about that for a moment. There are going to be some New Testament passages that shed some light on this that are going to refer to this serpent and what happened here because this is a major event. Consider with me a few of these. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says here to a church that is struggling through some things, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, so he's making an analogy here, he's comparing what they are going through right now, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So just as Eve was led astray from pure devotion, Paul is afraid the same type of thing is going to be happening with these people at Corinth. Meaning that he seems to be saying that this serpent who was active in Genesis 3, that that same being is still active in trying to lead the people of God down the same path. Now that may not be a real strong connection in identifying who the serpent is. This passage, however, is a very strong passage to indicating who this serpent is. Revelation chapter 12 is a very fascinating uh, scripture. that We're going we're gonna to get into more of the details of that later on in our study. Many will take this passage and they will say, well, here's a description of the backstory of Satan. This answers our questions that we're looking for today of where he came from. It is a very important passage that does involve Satan, but... As we will later see, it's a, the, the thrust of that passage is really talking about something that is going on with, at the cross and with the resurrection of Jesus as this war that is going on and this great dragon being thrown down. Not something that predates the creation of mankind, not something that is before the incarnation of Jesus. That's a lot that's being said there. You can look at that some more on your own. We'll look at it later. But here's the point we're making right now. This is a passage that describes this dragon figure in the book of Revelation. But this is an important verse out of that because it identifies that dragon when it says that that dragon is also known as the serpent of old. Serpent of old seems to be pointing back to that Garden of Eden and the serpent that shows up in Genesis chapter 3. So here we have an identification of this dragon who is also called the devil and Satan 
and the serpent of old. There's four terms that are used for this same figure that we have here. And sometimes the Bible will use those interchangeably. So we have pretty good evidence based on this passage here. Let me show you one more of a possible connection to shed some light on the garden. Romans 16 verses 19 through 20 is going to say this to Christians at the end of this letter of Romans about the warfare that they're engaged in. We'll probably come back to this idea because this relates to all of us. He says here, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Okay, the contrast of good and evil, we should already see uh, a play on the, the words that are used there in Genesis chapter 3. But then he says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, is what that should say there. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, well there is a passage talking about the defeat of Satan. This is good news if we're talking about spiritual warfare and how we are going to be involved with that. What does that mean about Genesis chapter 3? Well, later on in Genesis 3, after you see the sin that happens, Adam and Eve are ashamed about it. They try to hide their sin. God confronts them about it. There's going to be a threefold curse. A curse of the man, a curse of the woman, and a curse of the serpent. Here's what God says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Maybe the first real clear passage in the Bible, first real clear verse of what is at stake in this big picture of spiritual warfare. There's, there's a lot being said just in this one verse. I, being God, will put enmity between you being the serpent and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he, that is her seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea is that the foot of whoever the seed of the woman is, is going to come in contact with the head of the serpent. Now, this is metaphorical language here, so just bear with me, but picture that. Picture this, this foot of the seed of the woman being someone who is going to come in her line, being something that is going to make contact and crush or bruise the head, but he is going to be wounded in the process. So he is going to be a wounded warrior who is going to deliver, who's going to receive a blow. He's going to be wounded on the foot, but he ultimately will use that foot to crush the head of this serpent. Now we're giving away the ending of the story of the Bible in many ways here. Spoiler alert, Satan loses, okay, if you didn't know that already. But this is really important to see this, that whenever the Christians see this passage and they say, okay, good, evil, God is going to finish this process of crushing Satan under our feet as was told in the curse after the sins in the garden. Hope y'all are tracking with me so far. Let's go on a little farther. That's the serpent. We've seen a little bit about that. Now that still doesn't tell us where does he come from? Why is he there in the garden in the first place? And if he was he ever in a good relationship with God? And if so, what happened to change that? Consider this passage with me. Who first seduced them, that is Adam and Eve, to the foul revolt? 
the infernal serpent. He it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge, deceived the mother of mankind. What time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his hosts of rebel angels, by whose aid, aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers, he trusted to have equaled the Most High if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised in pious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Him the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal skies. That's some beautiful poetry right there. That seems to spell it out for us pretty clearly. There's a war in heaven. Satan and his angels, his host who were fighting against God, leading this rebellion, and they lose and they're thrown out. Should be pretty straightforward, except that's not from the Bible. That's from John Milton's 1667 epic poem, Paradise Lost. Now that's the picture we probably assume uh, of what we think of. And then, you know, maybe that we, that could pass off as scripture because it's written as that King James feel to it. And it's beautiful poetry. John Milton, however, as great a poet as he is, he's not a biblical scholar. Okay? And even if he is, he's just giving us a, a recasting of things which might have taken place. Our assumptions are is that this is the way it happened. Even if you've never read Paradise Lost, you have this image in your mind of what happened, this war in heaven. Now that is difficult to try to reconstruct from Scripture itself that that is the way it happened. It could have happened that way. However, we are told definitively the backstory of Satan. Now I say that, and you're probably already raising some objections to that in your mind, some of you who know your scriptures, you're probably already thinking of some passages in the Bible that could play into this, and we're going to talk about a couple of those, because I think they are important, and I do think we're going to learn something about Satan in those. What I'm saying here today is that this is a tough question that the Bible does not give as straightforward an answer to as we may think. But let's talk about a couple of passages here. And I want to talk about two passages that are going to give us analogies that might have something to say about Satan and about his backstory. Now, these two passages are going to come from Isaiah chapter 14. And the other one was from our scripture reading, Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, the reason I say these are analogies is because if you do an honest reading of these passages, let's take Isaiah 14 for a moment, and you see that passage, you see what is the subject of this passage. Again, you've always got to look at the context of a scripture if we're really going to see who is this addressed to, what is it talking about. The primary context of Isaiah chapter 14 is about the king of Babylon. It is about the the power and authority figure who is human who is part of Babylon. Now, it does seem to be drawing, though, on a story. Whether it is a story that some scholars would say is drawn from mythology of the the nations around them, sometimes the Bible does that. Sometimes it will use the language of of the myths of some of the the tribes, nations around them to, to make comparisons, to tell poetically something that has happened. Or... Maybe it is drawing upon Genesis chapter 3 and the story that we have there. The question is going to be, who 
is the king of Babylon being compared to in this analogy? Ezekiel 28 is going to be our other one. And this one from our scripture is addressed to, it's about the king of Tyre. But once again, there seems to be an analogy here of a story that is told about him. Who is he being compared to? Some are going to say Adam, some are going to say Satan, some are going to give other answers there. I think it's worth us taking a few minutes to examine these, these texts together today. Again, I told you this, this is a little bit meatier stuff, but I hope it's interesting to you. You've got questions about Satan? Let's get in there. Let's talk about it a little bit. Let's go to Isaiah 14 first off and talk about some of this. I'm just picking out a section up here. Again, you will read the context and you will see this address to the king of Babylon. But here's some of the language. How you are fallen from heaven... Morning star, son of dawn. We'll leave that there for just a moment. We'll come back. How you are cut down to the ground, you who had laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. That's another expression for what we talked about a few weeks ago, the divine council, okay? The, the, the place where they would meet. That's an idea both in the pagan ideas around them, but it's also an idea in the Bible that there is a sense that the sons of God, the angelic beings, do meet together. There is a, a time of assembly. It doesn't say that it's on a, a, an actual location on the earth of a mountain, but that's the language that's used here. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's what he says. But you are brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. Let's go back and look at this a little bit. Morning star, son of dawn there. Now, I, I, will, I will say here, I think there is something to be said for the fact that if you read the book of Job, and you read Job, and when God starts speaking in Job, in Job chapter 38, and you get to verse 7 of Job 38, it starts talking about these, the morning stars which sang along with creation, and then the next line identifies this, these morning stars with the sons of God, which we know are angels. So there is a comparison there. Sometimes angels are associated with stars. It doesn't mean angels are literally stars. It just means that's the language sometimes used associated with stars. Sons of God and these stars. So to say that, that someone is a morning star, well, maybe we are in the realm of talking about angelic beings here. It's interesting that this word could also be translated most literally as shining one. In Latin, that is where you get this translation, shining one, luminescent one, Lucifer. Some of your translations may still have that word here. That is why I'm not telling you that that's definitive evidence that this is, this is talking about Satan. However, I'm just showing you that that is where that name Lucifer becomes associated with Satan is a reading of this passage as telling us something about Satan's story. Now you may read this and you, you read about the king of Babylon, you see this language here and you say, well, that's, this is nothing about Satan in this passage. We at least need to consider that most of the early Christian writings that we read up, some of the earliest commentaries that we have on scripture, 
they do see something from Isaiah 14 and from Ezekiel 28 teaching us something about Satan. It's not to say that they are about Satan. It is about the king of Babylon and it's about the king of Tyre. But again, if they are analogies, what is the backstory of the analogy? What is the, are they drawing from something that was understood about how Satan came to be what he was? Now, I don't find Isaiah 14 as convincing as I do Ezekiel 28. Consider some of the language of Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I am a spiritual being, I am an Elohim. I sit in the seat of the gods, or the Elohim, in the heart of the seas. That is the language of divine counsel. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Now, Go on down to this later on. So that's a little bit of the language that we're talking about here. But here's where we get into some of our scripture reading to rehash some of this. Son of man, raise a lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. We're in verse 12 and following. You were the signet of perfection. Some of your translations will say the seal of perfection. There is an argument from the Hebrew. There's some debate about the translation of that word. Some have argued that that word could actually be the serpent, the serpent of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then it names all these different stones, which we, we read earlier. All, what all of these stones have in common with each other is that they, is luminescence. They, are, they, they shine, they sparkle. Now, some would say already so far, okay, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every stone was your covering. Well, this is, this is comparing him to Adam. Adam is there in Eden. He has everything there. He was uh, created to be good. He has wisdom. He has beauty. And all these stones here are, are, are making him come across as if he is, is the first high priest in the garden of Eden. These are like the stones that a priest would wear. So maybe this is talking about Adam. No, no, so far, that, that could be a possibility here. Some scholars will say that. But read on a little bit more with me. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed garden cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Now he's talking about the king of Tyre, but again... He can't literally mean that the king of Tyre was a garden cherub. We're in the realm of spiritual beings here. And at this point, I find it unconvincing that the analogy is just to Adam and to his fall. This seems to be that we are in that realm now of angelic beings when we talk about cherub. On the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire. That's an expression that's going to come up twice in this passage. And what a lot of people think that means, stones of fire, that's a way of expressing the members of the divine council, the ones who, who meet with Yahweh Most High to discuss and to delegate, to be given tasks 
If, you're, if somebody's not registering with you, go back and listen to what we talked about a few weeks ago, if you can find that online. This divine counsel of the sons of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Are spiritual beings created? They are. Every being but God himself is a created being. So there is, that could be human, but it could also be these angelic beings that were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Guardian cherub. A cherub's job is to guard sacred space. Now, could it be, at least throwing out this possibility, trying to make some connections, y'all think with me through this. I appreciate your patience and willingness to open up your mind and think through some more difficult things here. Could it be that God has created this being who is placed in the Garden of Eden as a guardian of the sacred space and has a certain job to do there. And yet that being oversteps his responsibility. He goes beyond the domain that was given to him. Now we do know from the book of Jude that that has happened with the sons of God with spiritual beings who are given a domain, they are given authority, they are delegated tasks, but they go outside of the realm of what they were given. Could it be that this guardian cherub is that serpent who is there as a spiritual being, as a guardian who is there, and yet he ends up rebelling by trying to trick the man and the woman into their sin. There is a possibility, the fact that this passage and Isaiah 14 both seem to be some comparisons here, that maybe they do teach us something about Satan. Not saying that that is the primary message of these passages, if you read them in their context. But again, they are making analogies to something, and if that analogy is to something that has very, has very well really happened in the real world, it seems to be that it's about someone more than human, Amen. a guardian cherub. Now, having said all that, again, we've got, we've got questions. What else do we learn about Satan in the Old Testament? Is there anything else that we learn? He's not mentioned much. Three passages I want to point out to you quickly. One is the book of Job. We studied Job here a couple of years ago. A very fruitful study if you were with us on Wednesday nights. One of the questions that we dealt with is, you have this divine counsel, the day when the sons of God are coming together and they're meeting with Yahweh and they're, they're, we presume that they're talking about the tasks that have been delegated to them. And the text is going to tell us that among them was the Satan, the Satan came among them. And he says that he is coming from roaming to and fro on the earth. Now that passage is going to raise a lot of stuff. Number one in my mind, let's say this up front. We don't know for certain that that 
again, Satan is used of other people in the Old Testament too. Balaam uh, sees an angel, the, and uh, angel of the Lord on his path, and it's called a Satan. It's called an adversary, even though it's not a bad thing. It's someone who is blocking his path. You can see that the word is a bit fluid. It can be used for people other than just this one figure. So we don't know that this one who is part of the sons of God, part of the angelic council, is necessarily the devil. If he is, though, it doesn't seem to be that he is rebuked in this passage. He is given a task, and he's given limitations on that task. He seems to be working under God's authority in this. Again, he's given some things that he can do with Job, some things that are off limits that he cannot do. He is working, in a sense, under God's authority. That puzzles us a little bit. That doesn't seem to line up with the picture of the devil that we get in the New Testament, who seems to be everything is against God. Or maybe even though the devil of the rest of the Bible is completely against God, maybe God still in his sovereignty has a way of controlling in a sense, what powers he does have. That's certainly something we need to take into account. I think the message of the Bible, if we don't come away with anything else out of spiritual warfare, is this. God is much more powerful than Satan. Whatever damage we think Satan can do, his powers have limits. There are powers, but there are limitations to those. So before we go getting scared by getting into all of this or or get discouraged by all of this let's remind ourselves of that he does seem to have a role among these sons of God if this is the same Satan that we're talking about in the rest of the Bible but it seems to be that his role in this place is an investigator he's a tester or he's a prosecuting attorney we may think of there now prosecuting attorneys aren't all bad guys, right? My brother's a prosecutor. If he's listening to this later on, I guess I could call him a Satan and be accurate. He probably wouldn't appreciate that too much. But that is what the word means. He's an accuser. However, he can do his job as a prosecutor really well. A good prosecutor He's seeking a conviction, but seeking a conviction within the law and seeking a conviction along a just conviction, okay? A good prosecutor is seeking a just conviction. Amen. It is, in fact, he told me recently of a case where where they, they dropped a case because they did not feel they had sufficient evidence to go forward with a just seeking a conviction of someone that they thought would be just. So a good prosecutor is seeking a just conviction. Part of what could be the role of Satan in the scriptures is that he's given a task of being a prosecuting attorney, of being someone who is sifting, as we see later on about Satan demanding to sift Peter like wheat, okay, sifting to, to test to see what's really there and to allow the the true spirit of who we are, our true character, to surface, could be that that is his original task, but that somewhere along the way, he has gone outside what his dominion really was. He's no longer a prosecutor who is seeking justice, who's seeking truth. He is someone who is trying to twist 
He is a slanderer. He is a liar. He is someone who is not seeking truth in his convictions. He is just seeking conviction, whether it's true or not, whether it's just or not. And that could be part of why he becomes an enemy of God rather than as someone who continues to help God. The book of Zechariah, I believe, gives us an example of this. Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is one of those, those justice scenes here. Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Now, God doesn't say that to Satan in the book of Job. There's limitations there, but there's not a direct rebuke there. Here in Zechariah, you get a rebuke of this accusation. He has overstepped his role as a prosecuting attorney. He is slandering. He is accusing. He is not seeking true justice. God is coming to the defense of this high priest Joshua just as God is coming to our defense whenever we are slandered by Satan. Whenever we are accused by him. Whenever our sins are twisted. And yes, our sins are real. Let's say that. We have reason to have prosecution brought against us. But Satan is not for a just hearing that we would have. He is for our downfall. God is not. God is for us. And as Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? One more passage that mentions Satan. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Already here he's painted as an enemy as well in a role as a tempter. Now having said all of that today, I may have created more confusion than anything else. But what I've tried to show you are there are at least two possibilities here of a backstory of Satan. And it could be that both of these are accurate at the same time. Maybe he is a guardian cherub that is in that Garden of Eden as a serpent with an original role that he oversteps. Maybe he also has a role of this being a prosecuting attorney, of being a tester, someone who sifts people to see what is true and what is real, but he oversteps that. And in both cases, he becomes a rebel. He rebels against God, against his created purpose, and he therefore is at war with the God of the universe from that point forward. But what's your appetite? Just a little bit more, I hope. Let go back to Genesis 3.15 in closing today. If you've looked at the Bible long enough, you know this passage is pointing to Jesus. You know it's pointing to something that we get to participate in, according to Romans 16, as the people of Jesus, crushing Satan under our feet as well. What's interesting about this passage, um, um, among many things, is not only the outcome, it is setting up the battle lines setting up what that warfare is going to look like through the rest of the Bible. Now that we know Satan is this rebel, he's not going to be the only rebel. We've talked already about other sons of God who have left their domains, who have done things against the will of God and have really joined the other side, have joined the evil forces. 
But I'm convinced that this line here of Satan having seed is not just other angelic beings. There are going to be human beings that are going to, whether they realize it or not, become a part of the seed of Satan. And that is what we're going to talk about the next time we get into spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We confess to you that there's a lot that we struggle with understanding. Father, we pray for wisdom with these things. We pray that we will handle these texts carefully. We pray that you would help us to show grace toward each other as we know that there may be some disagreement on these passages. Father, we pray that we can find the truth uh, to know where our enemy has come from. But ultimately, Father, we know that that question is not the most important question at all. It is to know what his purpose is now and that he is fighting against us and we are at war with him. And may we have the assurance that you are stronger than he is. May we carry that assurance with us this week. May we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And throughout this whole series as we talk about these ideas, give us that reassurance that if we are in Christ, we are on the side of victory. We pray this in Jesus' name who gives us that victory. Amen. Today, if you are struggling with something in your life, we know that Satan plays a role in temptation. He's often called the evil one. In fact, Jesus told us to pray for delivery from the evil one. But we also know that we play a role in that too with the free will that God has given us, even though that will is, is stirred towards sin, each of us make a decision for sin at some point in our lives. And we enter into that condition of being outside of where God has intended us to be, of being lost from Him, of being separated from Him, of being in a state of death. And we need to be revived. We need life again. We need to restore that purity, that goodness, that intention that God had for us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He was raised from the dead so that you would no longer be under the defeat of sin and death, but you would be under the victory of Jesus in his kingdom. Today, if that victory is not yours yet, if you haven't received it, if you haven't confessed Jesus that He is the Lord, that you ha He is the Son of God, He has overcome sin, He's overcome death, you want to make Him your Lord, you want to repent from the life that you have lived before under the reign of sin and death, and you want to give yourself to Him and to participate in that victory now from this point forward in your life, all that comes together as we confess that and we're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can start living with Him. If you've been baptized in the Christ, but you need prayers, maybe you know the, the, the Satan, the serpent, is very real in your life still. And you want to ask for the prayers of this congregation to help you in your warfare against Him. Then we also encourage you today. If you have a need, please come as together we stand as we sing.